Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us today on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and of course, streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Chances are you're listening to this broadcast in the car with your air conditioner on, or sipping a cold drink with ice cubes, or maybe contemplating what's in the freezer that you might defrost for dinner tonight, all of which are benefits of ice. These days, mechanically made, of course, but not that long ago, historically speaking, only available to those who lived in cold climates or those wealthy enough to store it. It's hard to imagine a world without ice and refrigeration and the many things we take for granted that ice has made possible in our society, from cold beverages and cocktails to winter sports, from convenience stores to food storage, and even cutting-edge cures for cancer. And then, of course, there's the tragic irony. The more we depend on the technologies made possible by cooling, the hotter the planet grows. Joining me today to talk about our society's obsession, mastery, and dependence on ice is historian and environmental writer Amy Brady, the executive director and publisher of Orion Magazine. Today we'll be talking about her latest book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Amy Brady, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. So remind us what life was like without affordable ice for part of the year all over America and all the time for the rest. It wasn't nearly as pleasant as it is now. Uh, For people living in warm climates before uh, ice was uh, everywhere, uh, imagine a hot summer day and you're sick with the summer cold or worse yet, a summer flu and you're running a fever and there's no effective way to get cool um, because there there were no refrigerators, there is no ice, there's certainly no air conditioners. Um, But even if you're not sick and you're just, um, you know, you had a hot day outside, uh, a drink of water. Water or ice—not iced tea, but tea—would be the temperature of air of, of, of the room temperature. It would—it just was not nearly as comfortable <laughs> as it is today. So let's talk about the man known as the Ice King, Frederick Tudor. Who was he, and how did he become obsessed with shipping huge chunks of ice from Massachusetts to tropical countries like Martinique? Yeah, Frederick Tudor changed everything. Uh, in the early 19th century, uh, when he was in his early 20s, he landed on the idea to ship large blocks of ice out of his family's estate in Massachusetts to people living in warm climates around the world. And uh, by doing so, he brought ice to places where it didn't form naturally, like you know the southern uh, American southern states and territories. And he also created an infrastructure so that people who weren't nearly as wealthy as he and his family were could eventually afford things like ice boxes uh, and even ice houses where they could store ice year round. How exactly is ice harvested and won't it melt on a long ocean voyage? How did Tudor handle that? Yeah, the harvesting ice was dangerous, dirty, 
business. Uh, you know, people uh, who are carving the ice uh, would use these giant saws to do so, and then long uh, wooden uh, poles to float the ice blocks to shore, where they were then hauled out of the the bodies of water and into the back of wagons. Um, and so this work was done during the coldest parts of the year, you know, when temperatures were dangerously close to zero. And even though most of the water was presumably frozen, it wasn't always easy to see where the ice was thin. And so it wasn't uncommon for men and horses to fall through the water, sometimes to their deaths. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, they were successful at getting those ice blocks out of lakes and rivers. And yeah, Frederick Tudor figured out how to bring those blocks of ice to warm climates via ship by fitting uh, the cargo hold of ships so that the physics resembled those which were happening in ice houses. Um, so a quick side note, you know, an ice house, it wasn't a house like we think of a house today. It was essentially a deep well that went deep into the ground several feet where people would store blocks of ice uh, surrounded and packed with sawdust and hay so that the external sides of the ice wasn't exposed to the air. And, uh, you know, they were packed tightly so that air couldn't get through the crevices between the blocks. And moreover, the ice was elevated out of its own meltwater. And so when all three of those aspects came into play, it wasn't unusual for ice and ice houses to last all year long, even through the summer. And so, yeah, so, so Tudor, uh, he, he created the same conditions in the cargo hold of a ship. <laughs> it's very. It was very difficult, of course, for Tudor to get permits to sell ice in Caribbean countries but not as difficult as convincing people to buy it. One of the funniest stories in the book that has a lot of wonderful stories is the fact that people really ticked off at him because it melted. <laughs> what did people think of ice and how did Tudor create a market for it? Yeah, you know, it never occurred to Tudor for all of his his foresight and and I would even say brilliance, it never really occurred to him what it would be like for somebody who lived somewhere where ice never formed naturally to see ice for the very first time. It wasn't unlike seeing a unicorn. It was this strange, cold substance that melted when it got too warm. And so people at first had no idea what ice was, let alone what to do with it. And it took Tudor years before he convinced people to actually buy the stuff. And he did it by showing them how to make the most delicious things. Uh, he taught bartenders how to make drinks on the rocks uh, and cafe owners how to make ice cream. And, you know, just like today, once you get a, a taste for a drink on the rocks or a delicious frozen treat, it's really hard to say no. <laughs> he, you, you describe the fact that when he went to Cuba, he actually taught people something that seems today to be like the drink daiquiris and ice cream i mean the man was in the man was incredibly resourceful it was that all stuff that people had been drinking in the north that he brought down to to the caribbean yeah, yeah, it was. Um, you know, in places where people had access to ice, uh, you know, it it was already common to drop, you know, glasses of ice in a 
you know, in some water or even in a glass of wine, if you can believe it. <laughs> um, you know, the the notion of, you know, uh, the fancy cocktail today really didn't come until later. That actually happened largely because uh, of when ice arrived in the city of New Orleans. Um, but, you know, prior to that period, uh, yeah, in the North, people knew to drop ice into their drinks. Um, ice cream was something that uh, certainly people in the Northern parts of the United States had already been eating and largely around the world. You know, ice cream has as many, you know, mythical origin stories as ice does. <laughs> um, control of the ice trade had sparked many, many bitter controversies over the years, even what we might refer to as a religious war against artificial ice. So I'd like you to tell us the story of Dr. John Gorey, a well-meaning physician from rural Florida, who back in the 1840s, and that blew my mind, invented mechanical refrigeration and was attacked for his trouble. So John Gorey went to the tiny port town of Apalachicola, Florida in the 1840s to fight yellow fever. Apalachicola is on the Gulf Coast uh, and is essentially surrounded by swamps and thus surrounded by mosquitoes. But the thing is, is that in Gorey's day, doctors didn't realize that yellow fever was transmitted by mosquito bites. All they knew was that the disease got much worse in the summer months and then it waned in the cooler months. And so John Gorey thought, well, maybe I could cure my patients suffering from yellow fever if I can get the temperatures of their bodies to mimic the cycle of the seasons, by which he meant he could get them to cool down. <laughs> but the only way he knew to cool a human body in the 1840s was with ice. And ice didn't form naturally hardly ever in Florida. And the ice trade that Frederick Tudor had launched had only just arrived in that area. So, and it was very, very expensive. Uh, you know, regionally, it was considered white gold <laughs> because ice was so expensive. So Gorey knew if he was going to get enough ice to cool down all of his patients, he was going to have to learn to make the stuff himself. So he spent uh, years experimenting with different technologies until he eventually stumbled on a uh, the, the physics of compression, which is really how many contemporary refrigerators work. And he built a, an early compressor that, while it took a long time to get started, once it was going, it could, it could produce a tremendous amount of ice. And he was thrilled by this, as you can imagine, and thought that the public would also be thrilled when he made his announcement. Uh, but instead of being met with cries of gratitude and joy, he was met with cries of blasphemy, with people saying, how dare a mere man create ice? Only God Almighty can create ice. And sadly, John Gorey died just a few years after his invention, uh, penniless and with his reputation in tatters. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the role of ice in shaping America's history and culture. My guest is Amy Brady, the executive director and publisher of Orion Magazine. Her latest book is Ice, From Mixed Drinks and Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Amy, I'm old enough to have had a grandmother who not only called her refrigerator an icebox, but used to own one. And and your book tells us that back in the day, the guys who delivered ice, the proverbial ice men, were considered sex symbols, sort of like the 20th century version of Chippendales. Tell us, tell us why. How did ice men be looked at as sex symbols? Oh, I love this part of history so much. So when researching this book, I was surprised and delighted to find all kinds of popular songs that were written uh, at the heyday of ice delivery. So we're talking the late 19th, early 20th century. And these songs um, included lyrics about women, housewives falling in love with the Iceman. And there are all of these uh, existing Valentine's Day cards from that period with puns about the Iceman. (laughs) And and then, of course, there's Eugene O'Neill's famous play, The Iceman Cometh, whose title is derived from a punchline that the protagonist tells, a joke that the protagonist tells about his wife falling in love with the Iceman. And so, you know, I as I'm look, reading all of this, I'm realizing that there was a fascination and and in some ways, a collective anxiety <laughs> about the Iceman during this time. And it seems like that's because of all of the delivery men of the era. So the milkman, the mailman, and of course the iceman. The iceman was the only person making deliveries who came inside the house. Uh, and often they would come inside the house at a time when the housewife was home alone while her husband was at work uh, during a time in history when there was a lot of anxiety around women being alone with men uh, to whom they weren't married. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's just it's a really fascinating look at uh, American social mores and, um, you know, what uh, h- how we how we felt about about, you know, gender roles and, and romance. And and your book, the cover of your book has this picture of this this guy with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. And of course, they had to lift, as as you say in the book, they had to lift like like 100 pounds in one arm and a hundred pounds in the other or something like that. Huge chunks. So they were, they were really burly muscular guys. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a, a, you know, if, if you were to look up the word masculinity in a dictionary, you know, you might, you might see a picture of one of these early ice men, um, very strong burly men because they had to be to deliver those blocks of ice into people's homes. So because of your description of cocktails as works of art. I was moved to do some research last night. So I went out and and got a pizza, but I also got um, a fantastic old fashioned made with some artisan, artisan rye. So one of the things I learned from your book was that different shapes of ice, be they large or small, crushed or chipped or cubed, are very, very important to the final product. Talk about cocktails having developed as a result of ice. 
So the American cocktail um, is really is a direct descendant of the ice industry. So when uh, Frederick Tudor brought ice to New Orleans and turned it into what he called an ice city, he arrived at a time when that city was undergoing significant cultural transitions. There were all kinds of people there from different cultural backgrounds, eating different types of food, uh, playing different types of music. um, And all of these folks, because of this melting pot-like atmosphere, um, were uh, up for experimentation. (laughs) And so when Tudor arrived with ice and he went to the local bartenders to show them how to make cocktails, similar to what he did in Cuba and Martinique and in other places, he found people who were just waiting for that magical element to turn their experiments into something really special or even artful. And so it did not take long for uh, you know, mixologists to take that ice and to figure out that if they change the shape or the size um, or you know the texture of the ice, that they could in turn change the taste of the cocktail um, because different sizes of ice and different shapes of ice uh, change the amount of dilution that happens to a drink. Um, you know, some folks, you know, may think, oh no, a diluted cocktail is no good. But in actuality, many, uh, you know, liquors and spirits uh, taste better when they have different elements and, and different degrees of dilution. So it's actually a great, a great part of a cocktail. Um, it can also change the temperature of a cocktail depending on the size and shape of a piece of ice, um, because the physics of the stirring and the shaking can rapidly reduce the temperature, um, you know, in of the of the liquid in relation to the surface area of the ice. You so, did you did your own great research, and you tell us that in New York, <laughs> in New York City, there are there are there are high end. Uh, cocktail bars that actually have dedicated ice makers. I mean, even today, ice is extremely important to to um, to really artisan cocktail makers. Yeah. So being the dedicated researcher I am, <laughs> I made sure that I did a taste test um, when I heard were the, the best cocktails in New York. And yeah, that's exactly what I found, that uh, ice is considered to be at just as important an element of cocktail making uh, as you know the, the liquor itself or the, the various mixes and garnishes that, um, that bartenders use. Uh, because it does change the, the taste and texture of a drink, and it also changes the appearance. Um, there's something really magical about looking at, say, an an old fashioned that has a perfectly clear, uh, you know, block of ice in it. Um, it feels really special. <laughs> and yeah, you know what I what I also learned is that some of these places are making that clear ice on site via something called a Kleinbell machine, which is uh, essentially a very expensive and large um, machine that can produce large blocks of ice that approximate the size of ice that Frederick Tudor's men were shipping uh, back in the early 19th century um, that bartenders then chip into the various shapes and sizes that they need. Um, and then there are also a new, there's a whole industry that has been built up uh, around companies that are delivering that uh, c- clear perfect, you know, perfectly shaped and sized ice 
to various restaurants uh, and bars um, that that may not have the opportunity to make ice on site. So yeah, it's it's a huge part of cocktail culture. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the impact of ice and refrigeration past, present, and future. My guest is Amy Brady, the executive director and publisher of Orion Magazine. Her latest book is Ice, from mixed drinks and skating rinks, a cool history of a hot commodity. Now, I didn't grow up in New England or Canada or the Great Lakes, so I never paid too much attention to hockey. In fact, I always thought thought it was a game played by indigenous people that kind of spread into our culture. But you write that the popularity of hockey has everything to do with artificial ice and, of course, a soupçon of violence. Tell us about the origins <laughs> of hockey. <laughs> well, the game itself, you know, to be to be clear, certainly does have its origins in all kinds of cultures, in indigenous cultures, um, you know, certainly in First Nations cultures and in colonial culture in Canada that eventually came down to the United States uh, via the railroads. Um, but the popularity of hockey owes everything to mechanical ice because what can mechanically ice, mechanically made ice made possible is uh, indoor ice skating rinks. And those rinks meant that ice skating and ice hockey and every other ice sport we can think of can be played year round and in any state in, in the country. Um, you know, even in Florida or Arizona, where, you know, uh, even the winters stay pretty warm. So I'm not a big hockey fan, but I do find something meditative and cleansing about the Zamboni riding around the rink doing intermissions. You give us like a wonderful history of the Zamboni. What are the origins of it and why is it so important? So the Zamboni uh, was invented in the late 1940s, early 1950s by Frank Zamboni, who was an ice skating rink owner. Uh, and he, like every other ice skating rink owner, you know, realized that it took a long time to repair the ice in between, um, you know, matches, quarters, half times of various ice sports, um, or even between uses of, you know, community ice skating games. Um, because the only way to do it prior to that time was to for a person to go out onto the ice, you know, chip away the the pointy bits, you know, by hand, fill in the ice with some water, wait till it freezes, brush it, sand it down. I mean, imagining doing that for every single dent <laughs> in, a, in a large sheet of ice, it took a long time. And so Zamboni sought to speed up that process by creating a machine that basically looks like a golf cart or a large lawnmower uh, on ice that goes at full speed, about nine miles per hour, over the whole sheet of ice, sanding it, smoothing it down, and filling in the dents and holes that are made from ice skates. And it can do a whole sheet of ice in 10 to 15 minutes, um, you know, give or take a few, depending on its size. And what is just so wonderful about this Hamboni is not only did it fundamentally change ice sports um, because it made it possible to be played faster and more efficiently. 
But it, the way that the machine captured the popular imagination, you know, everyone from Charles Schultz to David Letterman <laughs> have have uh, made odes to the Zamboni, and uh, I loved reading about their love for the machine and writing this book because it really is such a delightful sight to behold. Can you talk for a bit about how the proliferation of ice? I think. And I think this was in in Texas, actually led to the development of convenience stores. So yeah, so you know, I, I'm sure, like uh, many of your listeners, uh, if I ever need to grab a bag of ice for a party, or you know, if I'm just if I, I don't have enough ice in my freezer for whatever reason, I go to the local convenience store to pick up a bag, and I always thought that that was just another aspect of convenience that this store was offering me. I didn't realize until I was writing this book that no, those stores actually have their origins in the ice industry. And yeah, it goes back to Texas, uh, to a, a mechanically made ice company called the Southland Ice Company. And in the early 20th century, the Southland Ice Company was operating throughout the state, selling um, selling ice to the customers. When you know, one of the store managers um, realized a pattern, which was that often his customers would stop by to pick up their ice after visiting a grocery store and, and running their various uh, errands. And he would overhear them grumbling about forgetting a carton of milk or a loaf of bread or whatever staple they need for the week. And so he thought, I can increase revenue if I start stocking various uh, items that most people need. And so he did. And it was a huge success. Now, so much so that grocery stores got very angry at him, but he paid them no mind. And uh, eventually, the uh, the model of pairing ice with kitchen stables became so popular that he felt the need to extend his hours. And so he did that from 7 in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. And then slowly, after World War II, when the ice industry uh, slowly you know, melted away, it was time to rebrand. And so he rebranded uh, his stores after his new hours of operation. And the 7-Eleven was born. As an environmental writer and as a concerned citizen and a lover of great cocktails, how concerned are you about our obsession with refrigeration versus the damage it does to the planet? Um, talk about that, okay? Yeah, it's, you know, it's... Um, it's a, I have mixed feelings about it, of course. You know, I, on the one hand, uh, I'm as obsessed with ice as any, any other American I know. Um, I love ice in my drinks. Uh, I'm an active person and not a natural athlete, so I'm constantly hurting myself. <laughs> and I love being able to wrap ice in a washcloth and hold it to a twisted ankle or, or some other injured limb. So I don't plan to give up my ice anytime soon. On the other hand, uh, that obsession with ice um, has uh, led to uh, an obsession with refrigerators um, and air conditioning. And, you know, refrigerators alone, uh, there are about 110 million refrigerators in operation in the United States. And worldwide, the cooling industry contributes to at least 10% of all uh, global carbon emissions, which is not insignificant. 
So it's certainly taking its toll. Um, I was also surprised to learn that if a refrigerator has an automatic ice maker, which so many refrigerators do, um, your refrigerator draws even more energy um, because those automatic ice makers never shut off. That's why you can get ice any time of day or night from your from your door, your, your refrigerator door. Are, are we getting any better at making environmentally sound refrigerators? We are. I have hope that change is on the way. So what I what I um, what I have great optimism in is the fact that there are many experts, scientists, engineers, uh, and other smart folks who are just as concerned about um, refrigeration's energy use as I am. And uh, you know, as we speak, there are. Um, you know, experiments being conducted on different types of refrigeration technology that utilize far less energy and also uh, forego conventional traditional refrigerants uh, in favor of um, uh, of materials that uh, have a far have far less impact uh, on on the atmosphere. And so uh, for an example, um, there are uh, magnetic refrigerators that are already being produced. Um, and these are refrigerators that use magnets instead of traditional refrigerants and compressor technology. Um, and then there in, uh, in Cambridge, at Cambridge University, there are experiments being done with a material called plastic crystals, uh, which actually have nothing to do with plastic. That's a description of the molecular structure of this material that uh, forms a kind of plasticity when it's under pressure. And um, that material also, like magnets, can mimic the compressor-like material that uh, more traditional refrigerators use. Okay, wait, uh, again, we're going to have to leave it right there, but I want to I'm so happy that we're leaving it on a happy note. <laughs> that, that there's hope for ice and cocktails and refrigeration as the planet warms. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest today has been Amy Brady, executive director and publisher of Orion Magazine. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Ice was recently published by GP Putnam's and Sons. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the history of cooling one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.